question, what kind of cities do we want to live in? How do we want our cities to be? Cannot be divorced from the question of what kind of people we want to be. What kind of humanity we wish to create amongst ourselves and how we want to create it. And it is that mutual constitution of the city and who we are and what we are that is something which is, I think, again, very important to reflect upon. This is The City, an hour dedicated to a critical discussion of urban issues. And welcome to the program here on CITR 101.9 FM, CITR.ca, and syndicated on CJSF 90.1 FM, CJSF.ca, and available as a podcast at thecityfm.org. I'm Andy Longhurst. On the program today, we'll be discussing the recently approved Downtown Eastside Neighborhood Plan, which will shape the neighborhood over the next 30 years. We'll be critically unpacking and discussing uh, this plan and, and uh, talking with a number of people about the implications uh, for the low-income community in the downtown east side. That and more on the program. Stay with me. This is The City, an hour dedicated to critical urban discussions. Don't go anywhere. And the Downtown Eastside Local Area Plan was recently approved last Saturday. And on the program, we're going to be hearing a number of different perspectives on uh, the on the plan. Um, first up, we're going to hear from Tamara Herman. And uh, she is um, with the Carnegie Community Action Project. And she's going to be speaking and reflecting on... Um, the, the proceedings that went on over um, a number of uh, days, um, hearing from uh, many of the residents, especially low-income residents in the neighborhood, um, who had been engaged um, for uh, for largely a year um, in this process, and uh, really what the plan means for the neighborhood and the implications specifically around the issue of social housing. So first, we're going to hear Tamara Herman from the Carnegie Community Action Project. Um, this is a community organization based in the downtown east side, and uh, first, um, then uh, sorry. Then after that, we'll hear from uh, Councillor Adrian Carr, who voted against this uh, plan, and hear her thoughts on why she uh, chose to vote against that. And then also from uh, an academic perspective, we're going to be hearing from Melissa Fong, and she uh, was closely following uh, the downtown Eastside local uh, area plan, and uh, was closely following the hearing itself over a number of days, as I mentioned. So we'll be getting her perspective. Um, she is also a researcher and graduate student at the University of Toronto in geography and urban planning, and we'll be getting her uh, her thoughts on what the plan means and uh, whether this plan will facilitate or um, slow down processes of gentrification. That and much more on the program. This is The City, an hour dedicated to critical urban discussions. I'm Andy Longhurst. Thank you so much for tuning in. We're live here Tuesdays, 5 to 6 p.m. on CITR 101.9 FM and syndicated on CJSF 90.1 FM Fridays at 10 a.m., 10 to 11 a.m. So thanks uh, thanks for tuning in, and you may be hearing us streaming online at citr.ca or cjsf.ca or as a podcast at thecityfm.org. 
We have Tamara Herman talking about the recently approved Downtown Eastside local area plan. So I want to begin by asking you to uh, reflect and comment on the passage of the Downtown Eastside local area plan and uh, and I guess the, more generally um, just the, the three three days of, of uh, passionate speakers and uh, your experience through that process. Well, there's no doubt that over the three days that City Hall heard speakers on the Downtown Eastside local area plan, um, there's just no way they could have ignored the demands that that came through from the low-income community, which were more social housing and to build an Aboriginal healing and wellness center and to put controls on business gentrification in the area. So I think we made those demands very, very clearly. Um, there were some amendments that uh, Councillor Reimer proposed at the end of three days of hearings, which somewhat changed things. But overall, our biggest disappointment was that despite you know, organizing close to 100 speakers to come out, the definition of social housing still doesn't mean that all social housing will be available to people who are on welfare and basic pension. So out of this, would you say that that this is um, in, in some sensitive feat um, based on what uh, what the Carnegie Community Action Project and, and others have been arguing for for a long time now? We definitely lost the battle around the definition of social housing. We fought really hard for social housing to mean housing that was 100% accessible to people who are the poorest of the poor, so people who are right now street homeless, living in shelters and living in SROs, and we lost that battle. That said, there was one part of the plan that we fought for and that we consider to be a victory, which is a zone within a 21-block radius in the heart of the downtown east side where all housing will have to be either social housing or market rentals, so that means no condos. So we did win that, and we do feel that that's a victory because that will help keep property values down, which will also keep the rents down in privately owned SROs, and we think will make us better positioned to fight for social housing in the years to come. Uh, last, I guess last week um, on the program, I spoke with uh, Rory Sutherland about the hotel report, and I'm curious what you think this downtown east side local area plan this um, newly passed plan will mean for privately owned um, single residency occupant um, uh, hotels or sros um, particularly west of main street where there's been uh, increasing pressure on 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 those um, existing units and the rents keep rising do you think this plan will exacerbate that already uh, pretty serious um, problem of affordability yeah, the plan does not go far enough in terms of in terms of affordability in privately owned SROs. That's for sure. Um, we fought for rent control. The city says rent control is outside of its jurisdiction. We say there's examples of other municipalities who have put in forms of municipal rent control and it's worked. So we didn't get that, and that would be the top way of making sure that people stop getting run evicted and evicted out of these SROs and that the affordability ceases to be a, a force of displacement for poor people living in the downtown east side. So we didn't get that. Um, what they've said that they're going to do is over 30 years basically replace 
phase out privately owned SROs as low-income housing stock. So what that means is that they're going to be building social housing, they say, in the downtown east side and in other parts of the city. And we assume that that means that the remaining SROs will be converted into kind of the, the, the micro-lofts as they're being pitched on Craigslist now that targets more higher-income people and students. So we're disappointed and we're, it's not so much that we're disappointed that we're losing these particular SROs because most of the SROs that poor people are living in now are in just awful, in awful horrid, horrific state right now. What we're disappointed with is the fact that the city isn't building enough housing to replace all the SRO rooms. So we're losing these, this SRO stock. There's no guarantees on affordability in the process, and then we're not getting enough replacement housing in the city or in the downtown east side. So part of the plan uh, will set aside uh, development cost levies or development fees uh, from market developments um, to go towards um, social and non-market housing. And uh, I, I'm just curious whether this, um, I mean, how do you feel about this? Because then it sets up a situation in which um, market development must proceed if the low-income community is then to get social housing. Does that arrangement make you nervous? Well, of course it does, because we've seen how it fails to work. Um, what we argued for, and credit where credit's due, Adrian Carr also argued very strongly along the same lines, is that what the lab has to do is make a demand, define social housing as social housing, say very clearly that there's a massive and almost unprecedented housing crisis in the downtown east side in terms of Canadian urban areas, and then cite senior government for more money for housing. So they did, in the end, I think they, they, they heard us because they put in their amendments an advocacy plan, which they hadn't had before, but we still just don't think it's strong enough. And relying on the market to build social housing is something that has failed miserably and also led to an increased rate of gentrification in the downtown east side. And the Woodward's building is the classic example of that. Some would some have said, obviously, to, to just to stop development there. Um, until a point when when there are senior levels of government that will actually step up, and I'm just wondering whether you think um, that would that would um, be be appropriate, considering that that um, gentrification is rapidly sweeping through the downtown east side. I think that in the past, what's really worked in terms of building housing in the downtown east side is when the city has stepped forward and made an investment. So leading up to the 2010 Olympics, quite famously, the city acquired several plots of land and used that as a leverage point with senior government to be able to secure more housing. And that's the type of action that we'd like to see. That's what we think works. And so it's not so much that we're calling for a halt in all development, but we're calling for a halt in um, upscaling in the downtown east side while we sort out the crisis. The more condos that come in, the higher property values are, the harder it is for low-income serving retail to stay, the higher the rents go in privately owned SROs, and the more low-income people are displaced. So it really is a matter of taking affirmative and strong action right now. One point that we've tried to drive home in the city is that you can displace low-income people from the downtown east side, but you can't displace the issues that people face from the city by doing so. So what that means is that, well, first of all, 
when people are displaced or priced out of an area that they've invested in where there's services and supports and retail they can afford and community ties and a sense of belonging and they move to areas where none of these low-income assets exist, it's very bad for their health and for their well-being and it ends up being quite costly for the city as well. And so what we're saying is that this neighborhood should the city should be taking action to withstand the real estate forces and the market forces that are driving up affordability in this area because ultimately it's going to be very costly for the city to displace these 5,000 people who are now living in SROs and you know that's not even speaking of the, the human rights implications and the questions of human dignity and housing justice. So the 60-40 um, or so-called 60-40 uh, rental only zone, no condo zone in the Oppenheimer district uh, was contentious um, mainly um, to developers like, like Michael Geller. I I'm wondering if this plan, though, um, is a pretty clear signal that social mix is a policy that uh, is being embraced by the city of Vancouver. Yeah, it definitely is. It's a blueprint for social mix. And... You know, the plan has been described by some as being a middle-of-the-road plan because Michael Geller wasn't happy. Um, the 60-40 did go through, so there are some controls on the market in terms of real estate development and speculation, and we're not happy because we didn't get the housing that we want. So it's very much a middle-of-the-road plan. Uh, the plan never says in plain language, we're going to promote social mix because it's such a contentious term and because it's, it's very outdated as a planning policy. The plan just says we're going to build mixed income communities, but we're talking about an area that only has so much land with um, only so much density that's being zoned for. So there's only so many people that are going to be moving into that area. And if you crunch the numbers and you look at what's being built in terms of social housing, uh, you see that by the end, and for every 10 units of unaffordable rentals, there's one rental that will, or one social housing unit that will be affordable to people who are on welfare and basic pensions. So what that means is that low-income people will be outnumbered 10 to 1 in the downtown east side in 30 years' time. And the low-income majority community that for so long has provided people with a sense of inclusion and belonging in a zone where they're not excluded from public spaces, where they have the services and the stores that they need and there's relatively affordable housing, all that will be lost. I want to ask you a few questions about the process. So uh, the public had uh, about two weeks to review um, this, yes. this 400, was it 450 pages? Um, it's about that. About yeah. that, um, of this uh, downtown Eastside local area plan. And I'm just wondering if that is something um, that was a concern or if uh, if that was you were expecting that type of a timeline? You know, the low-income community walked into the process with a real sense of promise and hope. I think they spent a year negotiating terms of reference with the city that emphasized the, the emphasized the needs of low-income people in the planning process and that set the ground for a relationship based on partnership. And by the end, all that had just gone out the window. I mean, we didn't get the draft document any sooner than the media or anyone else. And that's, that's not partnership. You know, you're working on a committee with a group of people, and they get the document at the same time as the general public does. It's, it was sending a very clear message that 
our time for input was over and that when push came to shove, the big decisions were made behind closed doors. And that's really what we felt. And we wrote to the city with a number of complaints about the process later on. Um, we had some, there was some conflict in the committee um, and we wrote to the city with our concerns and conflict does happen sometimes in partnership regardless of whether you're working with low-income people, middle-class people, high-income people, and the city just kind of refused to deal with many of the issues that we raised and it showed us a, you know, a huge stack of papers at one point and gave us very little time to go over it. This was the pre-draft and had organized no feedback sessions whatsoever. And so the committee fought for feedback sessions, but I clearly remember that there was not even a City of Vancouver staff present at the last feedback session. So there were just so many clues along the way that by the end it had become somewhat of a silent masquerade, that the decisions had been made, that the city was meeting with others behind closed doors, and that part, the type of partnership that we thought that we'd walked into the process with simply didn't exist any longer. Do you feel that the, the low-income community um, and the low-income caucus and, and those voices were um, sort of, um, uh, were maybe uh, overshadowed by you know, middle-class voices coming out of Strathcona, um, Crosstown, um, the business community, or sort of these new class of business entrepreneurs that have uh, set their sights on the downtown east side? Um, to, to what extent are those voices um, now being prioritized, or are they? I think that the only hard win for us was the 60-40 inclusionary zoning. And initially, it was going to be just in the Oppenheimer district, and they did expand that in the amendments to most of the downtown east side. But that's really the only victory. Everything else that's in the plan is for other people. Mm -hmm. It's not for the low-income community. I think that... it. it I mean, there, in this case, you have an area, a plot of land where market values have, or where market, the market has meant that land values have increased 300% in just over 10 years. You have people fighting for what they see as a right to make profit, and then you have other people who exercise very little power in terms of material wealth, fighting for some of the intangible assets of community and the lifelines that they need to be able to survive. And I think that it's unfortunate that the city really gave way in so many areas to the interests of developers and speculators. I'm not sure that the Strathcona Residents Association and some of the kind of middle-class homeowners would feel that they were listened to. I think that they might suggest that their needs were overshadowed by the needs of developers. And, you know, I can't speak for them, but I have read and heard the SRA's submission. Um, they read a submission and they presented to council as well. That said, there were so many concessions that were given, especially in the area of uh, retail gentrification to the middle class, that it's hard to feel that low-income concerns were treated as seriously. Is there anything else that you want to leave uh, leave listeners with? I don't think so, except to say that um, this plan by no means signifies the end of an ongoing struggle against gentrification in the downtown east side, that the community really came together over three days at council. People spoke so passionately and fought really hard and that if I was counsel, I, I would probably be a little bit nervous after that show of force. So I think 
times like these are times to really get together and build strength. And I think that the, the struggle against gentrification by no means is ending because the city has set the development future for the downtown east side for 30 years in a large document. Great. Well, thank you so much for your time. And that was Tamara Herman, and she is uh, with the Carnegie Community Action Project, an, an organization based in the downtown east side, and uh, they do work and organize around issues affecting uh, the low-income community in that neighborhood. And on, uh, so just to uh, give you some uh, context about what we're discussing on the hour here on CITR 101.9 FM and syndicated on CJSF 90.1 FM here on the city, we're talking about the recently approved downtown east side local area plan uh, that Vancouver City Council passed um, on March 15th, uh, just around 4 p.m. And a total of 142 people uh, signed up to speak um, and and provide their feedback uh, and comments to uh, City Council. And uh, this is something, um, the public hearing um, that started on March 12th and continued on Friday, March 14th and concluded on Saturday, March 15th, where they approved the plan. So after council finished hearing from all the registered speakers, uh, Andrea, Councillor Andrea Reimer uh, introduced 25 pages of amendments and um, council held a 15 minute recess uh, to allow for uh, speakers and others to uh, and other councillors as well uh, to review those um, amendments. And uh, just to give you a sense of how the the um, the voting and uh, the follow-up to that um, played out. Councillor uh, Adrian Carr of the Green Party proposed two amendments that later were voted down. And uh, finally, after the debate, all of the parts of the downtown east side local area plan were approved by um, by City Council um, and the Vision Vancouver a majority that, that uh, uh, controls uh, Vancouver City Council. And Councillor Adrian Carr, again, of the Green Party, asked for two sections, or sorry, for the sections of the plan to be voted on separately. And uh, she was uh, the only councillor uh, to oppose a number of parts of the plan, um, specifically around uh, the, the definition of social housing. And that's something we're going to be hearing from uh, Councillor Adrian Carr directly about why she uh, voted against this plan and some of her concerns around the definition of social housing contained within the plan. So otherwise, uh, the plan passed unanimously um, by uh, the uh, NPA Nonpartisan Association councillors, as well as uh, from uh, Vision Vancouver councillors, uh, and uh, notably councillors Carrie Jang and Tim Stevenson of Vision Vancouver uh, were absent. So we're going to hear next, actually, from uh, Mayor Gregor Robertson uh, uh, and his closing comments uh, regarding the the downtown Eastside local area plan. And this uh, video um, or audio is is courtesy of City Hall Watch, um, and you can find um, a number of different um, videos of of comments um, and um, speakers talking to the plan. We're going to hear now, as I mentioned, from Mayor Gregor Robertson. for more uh, sheltering social housing to be created and um, we find ourselves in the middle of that where it's not getting built, provincial federal governments are not coming to the table with the funding to enable it and uh, I, I, I'm on Council Reimer's side with this. I, I want to see social housing built right away and I think the plan that we've got in front of us has had the rigor of uh, people in the industry side saying 
this is doable. We get social housing units from this. It, it, it won't be 100% shelter rates, but we'll get, uh, we'll get some built and we can make progress. Taking this uh, more political position, I think, keeps us in, in the same uh, purgatory we've been in for too many years now. And uh, I, I think we got to get the housing built as quickly as we can. If we can get more uh, at social and income assistance rate, shelter rates, then uh, absolutely we need to do that. There's no question about that. That's, that's what our goal is. But setting a floor that's realistic that we can actually deliver homes in is, is key right now. And, uh, and for the same reasons, that's why I don't think we, we support delaying uh, at this point going back to the drawing board. I think today is about moving ahead with a realistic plan that can get social housing built on the downtown side as quickly as possible. And then it's up to all of us to advocate with everything we've got to get the provincial and federal government back to the table to fund social housing at welfare rates. And I think that means raising uh, welfare rates to become a system so that buildings can be built uh, and fixed up and are appropriate for, uh, for people to live in. And as I mentioned, that was uh, Vancouver Mayor Gregor Robertson and his final remarks regarding uh, the downtown Eastside local area plan. We're going to hear next from Councillor Adrian Carr. She is a Green Party councillor, uh, the sole Green Party councillor on City Council. And these are her comments and uh, the, the re- some of her concerns around the plan. First, to ask you um, to reflect and give me some of your um, thoughts on the uh, the approval of the downtown east side local area plan. Uh, well, I'm I'm actually disappointed in the plan, um, and I didn't vote for many sections of it, especially those that had to do with social housing, because I think that's where it fails the people of the downtown east side. Simply not enough social housing. It's going to be built to satisfy the needs of the people there. And more importantly, it was really disconcerting to see the definition of social housing actually be switched in the middle of debate on the plan um, because there was a recognition that if the definition had stayed the way it was, if the plan was written, um, it would have meant uh, possibly not one room, one unit of social housing would be built at the base level, $375 a month that people receive as a, uh, as a, uh, on welfare as a, um, as a subsidized uh, rate. And so, I mean, that to me was shocking. You say that the, the definition was changed through the debate. Uh, can you tell me more about, uh, about that? Well, what was actually inspiring about the people who came, over 100 people coming to speak to council on the downtown east plan um, was the consistent message person after person said you've got to have a definition in the plan uh, that realistically reflects the needs of people in the downtown east side and more importantly reflects what I think and they thought um, reflects what people believe to be social housing which is housing which is subsidized at a rate uh, which can deliver housing to those who are in most need of housing, those who are homeless, um, those who are earning um, such small amounts on welfare, which the rates of which haven't been raised in in, in years and years. Um, and, and the definition that was in the plan 
didn't reflect that. It didn't say, look, that the housing that is defined as social housing should be at, defined to be housing at core needs, particularly the needs of people who are getting welfare and the shelter rate of 275 a month. Um, so after so many people came forward with that um, plea to council, it was changed. Um, the definition in the plan became one where one-third of the social housing that would be built would be built at welfare shelter rates, but that still leaves two-thirds not at that rate, and I think that was not only disappointing to the people, but certainly to me. So you had an unsuccessful motion to refer um, particularly this issue around the definition of social housing back to staff uh, to to work that out. That did not pass. Uh, can you tell me why you think your fellow uh, vision counselors did not support that? Well, I don't think that they, you know, I mean, my only supposition is that they they would they were prepared to change. Um, so it didn't matter if there was another couple of months of discussion. And my referral was to bring it back to council by the end of May. But you know, I have to assume that that the vision counselors were in a position where they where they they believed what's the point? Well, why two months from now versus now? They they were going to vote for the same thing anyway. So, you know, why take more time in the community and, and leave room for hope? Um, whereas my belief is that, you know, a plan absolutely has to reflect the will of the people who live in the area for which the plan is made. It's the people who live in the community who should be developing the plan. It should reflect their concerns, you know, their, the issues they want to see addressed in a way that will be of most help to them. That's why I wanted to refer back. I wanted to make sure everybody was on the same page in terms of the definition of social housing. And a discussion took place, it should take place, um, around if the definition is clear and true um, and does reflect the needs of those in the downtown east side, where, let's be clear, the average income is $13,600. I mean, this is the you know poorest neighborhood in all of Vancouver. Um, and so if, if, if we can't build, you know, the kinds of target levels of social housing, real social housing, um, uh, then, then at least we can have that discussion. But if you change, if you switch up the definition of housing, if you play with it, so it looks like you're building more social housing, well, I think that's fraudulent. What do you make of the the time period that was um, from when this um, report was or this plan was released um, and to the time that um, uh, people were able to speak at the public hearing on it? Uh, was it, it was roughly, is it two weeks? Is that correct? Or is it longer? Yes. Um, you know, people, the, the public had two weeks. Um, people who were involved in the development of the plan had longer. There was a draft plan in front of them by the end of December, um, and it hasn't changed that much since then. But still in all, we're talking for most of the public, you know, just a couple of weeks to look at a 500-page document. There's a lot of stuff in there. And, I mean, the discussion at the council table focused primarily on social housing, which is, in fact, the biggest, the single biggest issue um, that, that needed to be addressed in the plan. But there are a whole lot of other elements to that plan that we had virtually no time to discuss because of the predominant need to discuss social housing and the, the crisis of, of homelessness and, and housing that most affects the downtown east side. So 
uh, you know, for me, I think um, you need to give the community and the wider city much more time to be engaged till they feel that they understand the plan, um, they know where its faults lie, uh, they know the kinds of uh, cor- corrections that need to be made, and they come forward with those. Um, and and they have time to reflect on what's good about the plan and, and tell us, yay, go ahead with this. It's no surprise that a lot of developers are, are amassing um, uh, lots um, on the edges um, and also, obviously, through throughout the downtown east side. Do you think there is um, pressure facing uh, this council to just get this uh, plan through and, uh, and and try to move forward? Well, that's certainly what my fellow councillors will say, that there is so much pressure uh, on the need to build housing that you need to push it through. Um, my position is that that a plan that is for a community for 30 years needs to be thought through thoroughly enough so that you don't end up heading off in a direction that's not the right direction um, or, you know, putting in place elements of a plan that simply aren't wanted by a community or, or you know, yeah, just, just don't achieve the goals that, that everyone wants to be achieved. Um, and I don't think you need a lot more time to do that. So, for example, people who came to council said, just please consider this as a draft still, which of course can't happen once you vote on it. Um, but consider it a draft. We've come a long ways. The community is really, you know, getting, um, you know, diverse points of view, you know, together and in in a salt in and in, in understanding um, the different positions more. That would be the positions of those who are, you know, you know, living at rock bottom incomes um, versus those who are living with much more healthy incomes who also live in the neighborhood and the families who live there and the developers who want to come in and the small businesses who are there and the Chinese community and the Japanese community and the First Nations community. There are so many different groups of people in that plan and they certainly gave the message to council that we are we are really starting to understand each other's points of view and the challenges that each of us face. So just give us a bit more time to work those out and keep on engaging us in a way that can work those those details out. I, they didn't ask for a huge amount of time. They didn't put any time limits on it. I put a couple of months, but um, the point is that I think those conversations wouldn't in any way, if it was just to take another two or three months, delay unnecessarily the kinds of uh, pressures from developers to get in. And you don't want to succumb to pressures of developers who are going to put in the kind of housing which, as the people in the downtown side feared, might be gentrification, which leaves them with nowhere to go. One of the surprises was the, uh, the 25 pages of amendments that uh, Councillor Andrea Reimer um, uh, released. And I'm just curious in terms of process, apparently there was, um, from my understanding, about 15 minutes um, of break for for people to review that. And I'm wondering if you had seen those proposed amendments beforehand or if that was news to you as well. Oh, for sure it was news to me. And that's fairly typical of division counselors. They, they introduce things at the last minute that even their fellow counselors, like myself and the two NPA counselors, don't get a chance to look at. Mind you, they, well, anyway, the public sitting in the room were, I mean, I think in shock um, because they had these, these 25 pages to review 
staff, to their credit, went over and sat with them to explain the different things that uh, that were entailed in those 25 pages. But that's no way to do a plan. Um, you know, not when you've had people put years, um, and there was like a year of people's lives to get the terms of reference together for this plan, and another year uh, to actually develop the plan to the point at which it was presented to council for the vote this week. Um, you don't, you don't give people 15 minutes to actually review a change in the definition, which is at the heart of the plan itself, which is the definition of social housing. Um, you know, it was actually quite shocking. And that was Green Party Councillor Adrian Carr, uh, Vancouver City Councillor Adrian Carr, uh, speaking about why she voted against the downtown Eastside local area plan and concerns around the definition of social housing. We're going to hear next from Melissa Fong, and she is a gentrification researcher, uh, PhD candidate at the University of Toronto in geography and planning. And she's going to talk and reflect on the process and uh, what the plan means for gentrification in the neighborhood. This is The City. Give me your impression of of uh, this plan. Um, the main issue uh, to me and to a lot of residents that came to speak was the definition of social housing. Uh, this is really important because the plan actually changes the definition of social housing and um, kind of broadens it in a negative way. What it is, is what social housing is in the plan is defined as um, a third welfare rate, a third um, housing income limit, which is about almost $1,000 for a bachelor, which I wouldn't consider affordable, and a third, quote-unquote, affordable relative to Vancouver. So we all know that Vancouver has incredibly high rents, and that's not very affordable. And so that would be considered the definition of social housing as um, was passed recently. Now, in the original plan, they didn't specify any minimum for welfare rates. What a lot of advocates and uh, activists did was they really tried to fight for the 60-40 zone, which is 60% social housing, 40% market rates. That's what's planned for the Oppenheimer district. Um, They fought for the 60% to be um, inclusive of welfare rates. And the original plan had nothing saying that it would be able to be inclusive of welfare rates. And those are people with the lowest, um, the lowest amounts for rental. I mean, for housing income. Okay. Um, so that was really an important step that CCAP, the Low Income Caucus, took to fight for poor people. Was the definition of social housing, and it still isn't adequate. What would be adequate is the entire 60% being on welfare rates. Um, As it is now, uh, 60-40 is very deceiving. It kind of sounds like we're getting 60% social housing, 40% 
um, rental. But what it is, it's, it's actually 20% that is truly social housing and 80% that's market rate. And it, that kind of deceiving language, I think, um, really hit home to a lot of people who experience what it's like to actually um, find housing in the downtown east side and run into troubles because of these definitions. Um, a second issue is um, an Aboriginal Wellness and Healing Center. Um, a lot of people wanted to promote that. And what that is, it's uh, a center for everyone that doesn't discriminate against uh, poor people and racialized people. And it's a place of safety, a place of healing. And uh, we actually were able to fight for that, and the city seems to be amenable to that. So, um, oh, sorry, go ahead. Sorry, one more issue um, I would say is a no condo zone um, because condos really ramp up speculation in the real estate market. So with the the no condo zone, um, this has been sort of the the controversial um, part of the the um, Oppenheimer district, the um, 60-40, um, which, as you explained, um, many would argue that it's not actually 60-40. So on the one hand, uh, you have developers like Michael Geller saying that, you know, this is, we should not have a, a no-condo zone. But with this plan, it seems um, fairly clear that the city council is embracing a social mix policy for the neighborhood. I'm wondering, uh, with your with your academic background, can you talk about uh, the idea of social mix. Right. Um, social mix is really important because um, what it does is it, the, the language in the plan mobilizes moral panic. It's un, unsubstantiated fears of, of concentrations of poverty. And so what social mix, um, words like social mix and healthy mix in the plan and that all planners and developers are saying, what it is, it's a euphemism for deconcentrating the poor. So um, the public um, does a really good job of ghettoizing the downtown east side and saying that it's a terrible place. But people who live there know that, it, yes, it does have some problems, but generally um, there's a great sense of community and a great like, local economy. Um, people are very neighborly. People watch out for each other. Um, when we think about deconcentrating the poor, um, I mean, society always problematizes concentrations of poor or racialized people, and we ghettoize them, but we don't worry about, quote-unquote, social mix in Shaughnessy, Carisdale, Kitsilano. Um, what research shows is that social mix is, I mean, what developers and planners and that kind of dominant language in the plan, um, it doesn't actually create for healthy neighborhoods. What it creates for healthy neighborhoods and communities is secure housing. And so what social mix and that kind of language might do is, um, you know, exacerbate displacement. 
reflecting so council passed this um approved this plan and and um one counselor adrian carr had asked for uh this definition of social housing to go back to um the uh the the local area planning um process to actually the to to address this issue um i guess can i ask you to comment on the amendments um that came from Vision Vancouver, from um, Councillor Andrea Car- or Andrea Reimer, excuse me, and also, um, I guess more generally, uh, if you think there's room um, to continue um, to advocate for certain things, or if this is, you feel like it's pretty clear that this is a done deal, um, and that the definition of social housing is um, is redefined in this plan. Right. Um, this is actually a great question, and it, it was actually a really interesting political process. Um, I mean, they spent uh, three years planning this plan, um, and there was a lot of consultation with community. And the community did say that uh, the staff was, was very helpful. Um, but the political process during the hearings was quite different. Um, there were three days full of speakers that problematized um, the definition of social housing and how it wasn't adequate to actually their affordability. Um, uh, you stated, yes, Councillor Carr um, tried to refer it back to the staff to get a firm definition before they passed it. Uh, the rest of Council felt like the, the plan was good enough and adequate to pass. Um, most of the counselors cited the three-year process as as really labor-intensive and they didn't want to, quote-unquote, throw it away. Um, And they said that it was promising and they had to take action now. Um, What had happened in the room on the last day was that at the very end, uh, Councillor Reimer had 25 pages of amendments um, that seemed to be well-written, that it kind of seemed like nobody else had seen them except for Vision Vancouver. So they left to look at 25 pages of amendments to the original plan, and they only spent 15 minutes to go over them. And um, everybody in the room was looking at it with staff while the counselors were out of the room talking about it, and even the staff seemed to not know what... the amendments would look like. They had a hard time uh, describing what the amendments meant and deciphering them. And so this kind of tells me that there was something fishy happening with Vision Vancouver, that they had planned this for a while. And even when back in the room, um, NPA counselors said, like took a dig at that and said, hey, you know, it kind of seemed like 25 pages, 15 minutes. This is not adequate. Um, But in the end, it actually passed. And this political process is, I mean, it says something to political will or lack thereof that you can identify some serious problems with the plan. And the majority of people saying that there's a problem with the definition of social mix and it, 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 sorry, it wasn't even just like 
a, you know, a minor majority. 90% of people in the room were saying, let's, let's talk about the definition of social housing, and this can't pass until we, until we make that inclusive. Um, but it passed anyway. And so it really speaks to maybe the lack of political will out there. Melissa, did, did you speak to, to council? I did. And how were you received? Um, I mean, it's hard to say uh, because at times when I was looking at other speakers and the council conversing with them after and questioning them after, it seemed like council was engaged in actually asking meaningful questions. The problem is, I mean, very minimal of what people said was incorporated into amendments. Um, one of the things I talked about was the Chaoluan Tower in Chinatown. And there was a story recently in the news about how um, seniors, Chinese seniors, were actually being forced to move out because of rent increases. And uh, many people know that the Chaoluan Towers are nonprofit housing. Um, so this signals a problem that nonprofits are having problems, um, you know, keeping their units affordable. And so I asked council to make sure that you not only provide social housing, but you support social housing providers. Uh, Councillor Tony Tang made a comment about how it, he, I mean, I, th I feel like he displaced responsibility. He, he placed responsibility on the SAFER program, which is a rent subsidy. Um, and I would say that that's not the case, that actually, um, it, I, I mean, it has a problem to do with affordability of rents increasing, and rent subsidies should actually, personally to me, be a secondary measure. Rents should be affordable, and then you should also have rent subsidies as a second layer of affordability. Um, so, I mean, th there was back and forth issues with uh, questions to council. Um, I would also say that there were a lot of speakers, uh, mostly academics, who urged council to look at other cities for visions of social housing. And social housing is somehow um, criminalized here. And it's the idea that social housing has to be this terrible housing, but there are many places, especially we can look to Nordic cities, where social housing is applauded and it's visionary and it's the model, it's the standard model. Um, and council seemed unwilling to see that vision. And I thought that was a bit sad. Do you think part of it is also an issue and something that I'm sure they acknowledged um, throughout, but the fact that the city has limited means to be able to, to fund social housing and develop, and part of this plan is to try to use development fees um, to place them in uh, to fund social housing, um, and the, the, you know, the problem they face with a province that is completely uninterested in, in uh, stepping forward to help with social housing. Do you think they are... Um, in a bind and, and doing the best they can to sort of take the other side? Right. I mean, it, 
significant amounts of money are necessary to be brought to the table to make this vision happen of true affordable social housing. Um, What the city has power to do is to um, safeguard land to make sure that it can still be made into social housing. Um, What I feel they're doing is they're giving away too much land and they're converting too much land and they're giving up and saying, well, developers are the only ones who will do it. I mean, developers will develop land in Vancouver. It's profitable. And even if you give them very strict limits, it's it's profitable. And so I do think that the city is displacing blame a bit. Um, They have opportunity to lobby. They they have opportunity to protect affordability, and they're not being proactive to do that. Anything else, Melissa, that you want to... uh to leave us with? A couple things. Uh, first, I mean, in, in academia, when we talk about gentrification, it's, it's not only sort of the displacement of poor people. It's really, it's really a process. Um, well, what it looks like is it's a process of disinvestment, reinvestment, displacement, and then replacement of middle-class people. Um, and then the result is all of the low-income people can no longer afford the neighborhood. But I really want to stress on that disinvestment part. Um, that starts the process. I mean, the downtown east side has been disinvested in for so long. Um, and now they're willing to input money into this neighborhood, but only if it's for, quote-unquote, social mix. I mean, what they're saying is I'm only willing to spend money if I can attract middle to upper income people. Um, I'm not going to do it for low income people or poor people, which is, I mean, insulting to say the least. So um, that's one of the things I want to stress. And secondly, I just really want to thank um, the Carnegie Community Action Project the mainlander, the low-income caucus, and all the residents, um, that really deepened my understanding of this issue. I wouldn't have been able to talk about it or even think about it the way that I have and engage on social media about it if it weren't for the work that they've done. And that was Melissa Fong, and she is a, a PhD student and a gentrification researcher and uh, she was speaking to me uh, regarding the, the recent approval of the Downtown Eastside Local Area Plan and her thoughts on the process and also the substance of the plan itself. This is The City on CITR 101.9 FM, CITR.ca, and syndicated on CJSF 90.1 FM. On the hour, you heard from uh, first from Tamara Herman, and she is with the Carnegie Community Action Project. Uh, we heard then from uh, Mayor Gregor Robertson excuse me, um, responding uh, to the plan and in his final comments uh, before council, before the plan was approved. And then uh, from uh, Councillor Adrian Carr of the Green Party responding to why she decided to vote against the plan. And then lastly, and uh, most recently, uh, Melissa Fong. 
So we're going to wrap up the show with that. But if you missed any part of the program, you can check that out at thecityfm.org um, and find us on Twitter, the city underscore FM. That's the handle on Facebook, the city critical urban discussions. And again, catch the program live on CITR 5 to 6 p.m. Tuesday, syndicated on CJSF Friday, 10 to 11 a.m. We've got uh, Flex Your Head coming up next live on CITR. And we've got, uh, if you're listening, syndicated on CJSF, you've got Democracy Now! coming up next at 11 a.m. Thank you so much for tuning in. Uh, This is The City and Hour, dedicated to critical urban discussions. Have a wonderful week. I'm Andy Longhurst.